Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and thanks to Chris. Today we'll be looking at yet another duck slaughter season on Victoria's wetlands. It started last Saturday and unfortunately it goes until June. I'll be speaking with Laurie Levy and I've been speaking with Laurie Levy since 1986 about um, the duck slaughter, the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, I'll be speaking with Shirley Winton about issues that are pertaining for war and peace and affecting Australia at the moment. Her anti-GM segment with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network and Professor Emeritus James Petrus talking about shootings in America. He's written an article called The Political Economy of Massacres. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A weak Jane listener when any doubts, any suspicions we might have were evaporated by the good guys declaring there is no doubt evil capitalist Russia did it. Her most gracious majesty's home country backed up by good Germany, good France, good, good, good US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor and confirmed as absolute when the U.S. OBS voice of reason at the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.N. of the world, Nikki Haley, Liberty, Freedom and, announced there was no doubt evil Russia had been responsible. Which, coming from the U.S. OBS, if history means anything, means there has to be a hell of a lot of doubt. Uh, is it as no doubt as weapons of mass destruction of bristling with nuclear warheads and of plotting to invade every good guy country in the whole world simultaneously, Nikki? There is no doubt. It is as no doubt. So clearly, listener, there is no doubt the evil Rusky capitalists did it. Only the most cynical isn't prepared to take MI6s or the CIAs or Theresa's or Donald's or, importantly, the ever-logical and reasonable Nikki's word for it. In the US of, the unemployed are flocking to Washington, knowing new job vacancies are cropping up by the day in the White House or the FBI or the good old CIA, with Donald's latest signed edict proudly displayed for the cameras, banning the name of the occupant, bracket temporary, being displayed on office doors. It'll save a fortune in repainting. Good, very good. Bit of bad luck for the FBI Deputy Supremo knocked off by Donald just one day before he'd become eligible for a pension, but Donald certainly wouldn't have known that. He had become aware of tremendous leaking, lying and corruption, bad, bad, at the FBI, and we can but imagine poor Donald's ethics being abraded by leaking and corruption and especially lying. But then, how cruel. A former CIA supremo, John Brennan, said poor Donald would end up a disgraced demagogue in the famous dustbin of history because of his venality, moral turpitude and political corruption. 
Where'd that come from? Well, alleged, we say, because who'd believe such unprincipled behaviour of a US of Big Supremo, commander-in-chief of the freedom of capital world? Donald immediately displayed his anger at this slander. You're fired, he splurted his favourite phrase. Uh, uh, Mr. Supremo, uh, he already is. Back here, exasperating the distressed, poor, caring employers um, feel over slow wages growth, the evil ACTU has applied for a 7.2% minimum wage increase. And thus, we'd think caring employers would be cheering, but no. It was a smelling salts job. Such a raise would risk job security, the Chambers of Profits held. Wage growth is not the answer to slow wage growth. Speaking of slow, Senate former shock jock Darren Lyncham flew out of a cab. I only had two little drinks and may, according to reports, may have suffered brain trauma, but how would you know? Those who know the Minister for something to do with the freedom of capital, Matthias Rotten, Toother and Co., spat accusations of class warfare. Oh, if only, listener. Politics of envy describes Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Short and Ambition not giving handouts to shareholders who pay no tax policy as Labor's big tax grab. So, Matthias, this tax grab, the people now paying no tax who are the ones affected by this, how much tax will they be paying after the big tax grab? After the Labor Socialist Class Warfare Politics of NB Big Tax Grab, they will be paying, uh, let me calculate, um, uh, no tax. Um, so, what's the problem? The problem is obvious. It's a Socialist Party Big Tax Grab. I'll leave you to work that one out, listen. I, I'm totally lost. But Matthias and co and Lord Rupert of Wapping all predicted the policy would ensure the Socialists could not win the Batman by-election. What went wrong? He just can't trust the voters. That man of principle, Little Billy, saw the light on the Adani the Planet fossil polluter issue from the moment the member for Batman resigned and kept that light in view until the clock struck six on Saturday. Little Billy, just checking to clarify your position on Adani the... Uh, the prophet, the uh, planet. Uh, certainly, uh, in which state? Oh, well, the, the whole country. Sorry, can't do. You must be more specific. Obviously, I can't answer your question unless I know which state you're talking about. Well, just as obviously, that has clarified his position. But, little Billy, you also said you wouldn't tear up any decisions to approve the mine, so you oppose it, but won't oppose it? Well, what good is that? That shows I'm a man of principle. News this week that little Billy has been warned by some dedicated socialists his road to Damascus, oh, sorry, road to Batman conversion may cost the socialists key Her Most Gracious Majesty's land seats up north. Uh, dedicated socialists, uh, you'll support a fossil polluter just to win seats? It's tactics. We're not sure you'd understand tactics. Look, once we win those seats and become the government, we'll be able to implement our strong anti-pollution environmental policies, including forcing and darning the planet to close if it flukes obtaining the finances it needs.
Uh, well, well, no, we can't do that. Little Billy has promised to respect all approvals, but we'll be able to implement our other strong anti-pollution environmental policies, like a carbon price on big polluters. Uh, well, that may be a little difficult, given that big polluters and Lord Rupert of Wapping would run a saturation socialist carbon tax grab campaign against a carbon price, but, but that's a small price for being able to implement our other strong anti-pollution environmental policies. Well, well such as? We're glad you asked. Good question. We have this big, big policy to encourage every household in the country, every household, and that's a lot of households, every household to ensure everybody turns off the light when they leave the room. Imagine how much CO2 that would keep out of the atmosphere. Good point. Probably about as much um, hot air as their policy. The big supremo in Troubler was the Obadani the planet, Jayakumar Janakaraj, this week described the little bit of opposition to the mine as a, a flood of misinformation. Bit like the flood of pollution for which the company was recently fined a bit of pocket money and informed us, Every day, our business is working to balance the need to provide affordable energy with the need to reduce emissions intensity. We are at the front line, helping to solve these global dilemmas. Good on them. Congratulations for their fight against climate change and emissions. Although, we might have thought, silly us, that one way to assist in reducing emissions intensity would be not to open a coal mine on which the humbled Greens are coming under justifiable vitriol as cruelly insensitive for daring suggests as the country is battered by extreme weather conditions that climate change, which may or may not be climate change, may be behind the extreme weather conditions. On logic and sensitivity, race relations in True Blue Aussie and South Apartheid. Here, the Minerals Profits Council wants the Native Title Act changed to provide certainty. Certainty being so important to the greatest little economic order of them all. We must have the certainty that we can rip off. In this case, we must have the certainty these blacks won't be able to steal our land. But in fairness, the Minerals Profits Council was extremely fair about it. We want an amended Native Title Act to be fair both to the great resource corporations and to the terra nullius non-people while maintaining the principle that Native Title must not mean that terra nullius non-people can have any say in what happens to our land. And, and this also has to do with people suffering brain trauma, shame, shame, anyone who has ever suggested the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and home affairs, as opposed to barnacles away from home affairs, Constable Peter Duffer lacks compassion and humanity when it comes to caring for people in danger of persecution or worse because Constable Duffer displayed his true compassionate colours, compassionate white colours, by offering to accept all these poor South Apartheid white farmers in danger of losing the land they stole. Because as a caring nation, as a civilised nation like ours, we have a responsibility to protect people in danger. 
So all those non-white people, budgers trying to exploit our caring, civilised nature, sent back to where they came from, like non-white Tamils whom we deport back to non-danger in the land stolen from them, obviously face no danger, no persecution or worse. Poor South Apartheid, you know, like white farmers, like didn't live in fear of persecution or, or worse, like, you know, when South Apartheid had proper white big supremos, like the country is crying out for a, you know, like white big supremo. Notice the ASEAN talk fest at the weekend. The first speaker we inflicted on the sundry big supremos was Constable Duffer, lecturing them about regional security. Not that I feel sorry for them, but imagine what they must have thought of the quality of parliamentary democracy in true blue Aussie, of its collective IQ, of the civilised nation like ours bit. Although it could be interpreted as a brilliant manoeuvre, because clearly after suffering Constable Duffer droning on, it could only be all uphill from there. And finally, in the how do we respond to that department, Constable Pete means to change the law to prevent people using the law to fight their deportation. And direct quote, who needs embellishment in this situation, the government... Constable Dutton said, is not going to be taken for idiots. Oh, oh, how do we respond to that? Good afternoon. We don't even try. That is Mr Kevin Healy. And Mr Kevin Healy is back on tomorrow morning at nine and Little Bird told me that he's got a new presenter, a new co-presenter tomorrow morning. So that's something to look forward to between nine and ten tomorrow on 3CR. And that's City Limits. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah? That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Yet again, shooters invaded Victoria's wetlands. At the weekend, the start of the three-month-long government-sanctioned duck slaughter, and yet again, veteran animal rights activist Laurie Levy was there to witness illegal practices and rescue injured wildlife. He's from the Coalition Against Ducks Shooting. Laurie, I'd like to ask you first, how did the weather impact on Saturday, particularly the bushfires and the extreme heat? It was certainly hot up at Lake Cullen, but the bushfires certainly uh, didn't affect what was happening on the wetlands. I think the very interesting thing was that Lake Cullen was really the place to go to to shoot, as the Karanji marshes were the year before when there was that massacre of native water birds. But at Lake Cullen, the police were there in force. Game management had a lot of extra staff from DELP and other departments, and uh, only a handful of shooters turned up. We had 200 rescuers. Of of course, it was a very quiet day, and and it highlights that I think we've really broken the back of duck shooting, and from all accounts, we had rescuers out on Lake Elizabeth. It was very quiet there. We had rescuers on other wetlands, uh, mainly monitoring to see what was happening, and again, very few shooters turned out so 
you know, I think with all the pressure going on to the duck shooters from, and especially on the GMA from the Pegasus report, which was damning of the, the Game Management Authority. They can't regulate, they can't enforce, and in fact, the Game Management Authority last year only had five compliance officers. This year, they've only got two compliance officers to cover the whole of Victoria. And even with the better policing this year, which was more intense on shooters, it only happens on a two or three wetlands. We've got 15,000 to 20,000 wetlands in Victoria. All the old bad habits of shooters takes place on those wetlands. Well, what are you going to do about that? What we've done is we've called for the army to be brought in for the three-month duck shooting season to cover as many wetlands as they can because, you know, the, the police were terrific out there on the weekend, but they've got to fight crime on our streets, you know, carjackings and home invasions and a whole range of issues, and yet they can't be on the wetlands. And the Game Management Authority, with two compliance officers, can't even cover one wetland, let alone 15 or 20,000. So if Java Pulford allows duck shooting to continue, which I hope she doesn't, then the Army has to be brought in to bring some sort of law and order out on the wetlands. And, and even after changes were made, like uh, shooters having to retrieve a bird as soon as they shot it, both Field and Game and the sporting shooters are privately telling their members that that's a lot of rubbish and just go and do what you normally do. And also telling them that they've got to eat what they catch. Well, I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, it is ridiculous. And, and I mean, we, we saw birds that were shot and not retrieved. and They, they don't normally bother retrieving pink-eared ducks that they've shot because they're only a very small bird. They're just target practice. And, and quite frankly, the Game Management Authority compliance officers still aren't allowed out onto the wetlands because of occupational health and safety risks. And, and when a compliance officer wants to interview a shooter on shore, uh, that compliance officer must have two armed police officers with them before they can interview a shooter. And that, so the government considers duck shooters to be so dangerous that the compliance officers aren't even allowed out onto the wetlands. What upsets me is that the RSPCA does not call for the ducks slaughter to stop. Well, you see, the, the, the problem is the chairperson of the Game Management Authority is a duck shooter, and he's ordered the RSPCA off the wetlands. And, and I mean, the most disgusting thing is that the Game Management Authority won't even allow the RSPCA to take its mobile veterinary clinic out to the wetlands to help wounded water birds. And the reason, the reason given is, is that the RSPCA shouldn't be taking wounded water birds off lawbreakers. And the lawbreakers are us, our rescuers who enter the water before 10 o'clock, which they're not supposed to do, but they have to to help wounded birds. And the whole thing is farcical and, and, and it's a, a tragedy that the Game Management Authority is allowed to get away with telling the RSPCA they can't be on the wetlands legally. 
What about vets working with you in a vet caravan? How do you get on? Our vets were fantastic and, and they, like last year, they, they handled at least 150 wounded birds. But we, we work out of makeshift tents and we, we don't have the high-tech mobile veterinary clinic that the RSPCA has, which could be so helpful for, for wounded birds. But, but our, our vets were, were, were fantastic again this year in treating wounded birds that are just superb. And, and they work under tough conditions and they do it voluntary because they care about those birds and they were marvellous. But uh, it would, would help to have a high-tech mobile veterinary clinic where, you know, birds can be operated on and, and it's air-conditioned for the, for the wounded birds. And, but, of course, the, the Game Management Authority is run by duck shooters for duck shooters. I mean, it's really a, a, a duck shooters boys' club. It's a government it's, department. It's a quasi-government department. The chairperson is a duck shooter, Brian Hine, and... and Rod Drew, who's an ex-former um, CEO of Field and Game, is on the board. And, and, you know, when we caught Field and Game out in 2009, siphoning water from the Latrobe River illegally to fill their private shooting wetland at the height of the drought, Rod Drew was the CEO at that time. Now, I don't know whether he knew they were siphoning water, but he was the CEO. He never apologised to the public for it. And, of course, this was at a time for a long drought where farmers were walking off their land because they couldn't get irrigation water. And, and here are Field and Game stealing water from the Latrobe River to artificially fill their, their wetland so they could have a good duck shoot in 2009. But, of course, Southern Rural Water prosecuted Field and Game and Gary Howard, their wetland manager pleaded guilty in the sale magistrates court to illegally siphoning water from the Latrobe River on the 23rd of June 2009. And the other person is Mark Little who is on the board as well and he's ex-field and game and, and he put up a post a few years ago bragging about how in 1974 he shot 250 birds before 8 o'clock in the morning on the opening weekend of the 1974 duck shooting season. So the cowboy mentality comes from the Game Management Authority and it's no wonder that duck shooters out there are illegally shooting protected and threatened species. Can you talk about the comment of one of the duck shooting supporters who said... They were complaining about the changes, the minor changes that had been made, and they said, quote, a missed opportunity for the state to capitalise on the international tourism from hunters who make the journey to Victoria. How true is that? It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and I, I know that when Peter Walsh was Agriculture Minister in 2012 and 13, and he tried to do that sort of thing by bringing international tourists, shooting tourists in from America, and, but it didn't work. And, 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 of course, the Auditor-General in 2015 highlighted how small regional towns in Victoria are, are in financial trouble. Now, if duck shooting was bringing in the $439 million that the Minister quotes, small country towns like Kerrang would be awash in money, as Phillip Island is 
with their tourism industry. But unfortunately, duck shooting doesn't bring in any money because the dwindling numbers of duck shooters make up only 0.4% of Victoria's population. They couldn't bring in any money. And, and as local landowners say, that duck shooters might spend a, a few dollars having a few cups of coffee or buying some grog from the, the local hotel. But that's it. They obviously fill up with petrol. So that's it. When if you look at Phillip Island as a role model for tourism, they had over one million visitors last year. That's where the money is. I believe that Phillip Island brings in about 40% of Victoria's economy, tourist economy. And Kerrang has these 23 Ramsar-listed wetlands in their backyard. And if those wetlands were opened up to international tourists and bird observers, etc., Kerrang could be awash with the same sort of money that Phillip Island is. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, you know, the Indigenous clans in, in regional Victoria don't want duck shooting. They want tourism. And I know the Zsa Zsa Wurrung down at Bort, they want duck shooting stopped on their wetlands. They want tourism to be brought in because they can see the value of it. And really, the only industry small country towns will have in the future is a nature-based tourism industry. And, and what duck shooters are doing is helping to kill off that wonderful asset. With less duck shooters, did that make a safer environment for the rescuers? It was a lot safer this year because there were so few shooters and uh, because of the police coverage and the police had a drone flying around the wetlands, they were keeping an eye on shooters. And as I've always said to our rescuers, terrific having the police out there because when the police are on a wetland, it makes it much safer for our rescuers because the shooters have to be careful of what they do. What percentage of the birds that you res rescue are you able to save? It, it depends on the conditions. Um, I think out of the 150 birds that came in last year, I think only about 15 or 20 were saved. A lot of birds, especially threatened species uh, and protected and, and game species, are rushed back to Melbourne if they can be saved. and. They go to the Lord Smith Animal Hospital or Melbourne Zoo or Healesville Sanctuary to be looked after and operated on. And they do a fantastic job looking after wounded birds. And it's, it's just a terrible shame that beautiful native water birds are allowed to be shot in this day and age. I mean, duck shooting belongs in the 1950s and it has no place in a modern society. And I know... What happened last year was at the Karanti marshes was that because the Game Management Authority only had five compliance officers that year, they bring in extras from DELP and the Department of Ag and, uh, and Parks Victoria uh, and they sort of deputise them as, as rangers. And, and I know after the season, after the opening weekend last year, a lot of staff went back to their bosses in those departments and they were traumatised they said they'd never witnessed animal cruelty as, as it was out on the wetlands because the brutality last year was just shocking it, the brutality traumatised our experienced rescuers where they had to be debriefed 
and the staff from Delp and, and other parks, Victoria, said they would never go out to the wetlands again to work. And their bosses said, well, we have a duty of care to our staff and they won't be going back out there. What and was going on last year that it was so violent? The Karanji marshes, when you had shooting starting at least 20 minutes before the opening time, a police officer even said to me, it sounds like World War Three out there. They shot everything that moved. Our rescuers were out there with the shooters and they can see what's going on and they brought out Overall, 1,500 birds, dead birds, and of those, 296 were protected species that had been illegally shot, and that included 183 threatened freckle ducks and bluebill ducks. But it, the slaughter was so bad that we, we had to... Our councillor offered to come down from Sydney. He offered to pay his own way to debrief the rescuers. They were traumatised, and, and yet staff who had never witnessed a duck shooting opening weekend went back to Delp and other government departments totally traumatised by what they saw. Just the sheer and utter brutality to have to watch birds that have, have, that, that have been smashed into by either five or ten pellets or a hundred pellets, the broken bodies and birds that are still alive and struggling and it really is a, a traumatic experience, even for our, our hardened rescuers who have been out there for years. This slaughter goes on until June. Did you notice less birds on the wetlands this year? Yes, um, there were less. I mean, the, the most amazing thing is that if you go back 20 or 30 years on, on the duck campaign, the, the only time wetlands dried out really was when you had El Ninos. But these days, most of our wetlands were drying up this year and it's a La Nina year when there should be water around. And that highlights really more than anything that climate change is a major problem. And of course, there were a lot of birds in Victoria in January and, and February, but um, once wetlands started drying out and, and the floods came up in... Queensland and most of the birds started leaving but the thing that I find a great tragedy is that Professor Richard Kingsford who's Australia's top bird scientist isn't even listened to by the government you know the, the government puts in money for Richard Kingsford to fly aerial surveys every October to do bird counts right down the east coast of Australia and Kingsford this year said that, that there were only two flocks of birds, two large flocks. The, the Murray-Darling really didn't have any birds, and, and the wetlands like the Menindee Lakes and uh, etc. were dry, and they, they, they were they're normally good breeding wetlands for, for native water birds. But Kingsford said there were only two clumps of water birds, one up in Queensland, where they're protected because there's no duck shooting, and the other was down in Victoria around the Kerrang region. Now, you would have thought the government would have said, we've got to protect these birds to make sure that, you know, native water birds survive into the future. But they didn't. They just had a full-blown duck shooting season where shooters could take 10 birds a day. And, and it's just absolutely ridiculous. And, of course, when the floods came, 
in Queensland, a lot of the birds left. So there weren't many birds here really uh, on the opening weekend. You said just then that 10, 20 years, you have to remember, I'm quite sure you do remember, that you've been doing this for over 30 years. Yes, and, and I mean, there were a lot more birds around in the late 80s, early 90s. And since then, there has been a, a dramatic decline, which Kingsford has pointed out, that now water birds are at their lowest numbers. And even if there's a slight increase, the government will, will still call a duck shooting season because the governments of the day, whether it be the previous Liberal government or today's Labor government, they've lowered the bar so low that you could only have one bird left in Victoria and they were still call a duck shooting season. And they would probably put up the argument, well, if there's only one bird here, they can't shoot many, can they? And that's their attitude to native water birds. It's give the duck shooters what they want. When they want it, we'll make it a little bit harder for them this year by introducing a nine o'clock start and, and shooters stayed away. Well, you know, I think the government's going to have to make its mind up whether they do ban the activity. It, it has no place in a modern society. And, and you know, 87% of Victorians want duck shooting banned. Duck shooter numbers make up only 0.4% of the population, yet the government invests $5 million into that 0.4%. Why should they get that money? Why shouldn't hospitals or education get that money? Duck shooters are only out there for the thrill of the kill. And they admit that. Even the sporting shooters in field and game, you know, told shooters to go ahead and keep shooting as they normally do. There's no law and order out there, and what we're saying to the government you've got to get some sort of law and order and the only way you can do that if duck shooting is to continue is to bring the army in and let them do the job. Thanks for being there Laurie. Thank you Jan. Hope I don't talk to you next year. I hope so as well but I, I, I've got a feeling we might be okay. talking again. Bye. And that unfortunately or fortunately is the, the voice of Laurie Levy and I say unfortunately because it means that the duck season continues on and Laurie first <coughs> got into the duck season in 1986. That's 32 years ago. He's been out in the wetland every year unless the ones that he was barred from going on because the, the law just doesn't like protesters on the wetlands. So he's done that all voluntary for all those years. And if you'd like to help... It's the Coalition Against Duck Shooting and get onto their webpage and give them a bit of support. Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network 
is going from strength to strength. And one of its avenues to inform the public of the issues at stake for all of us is through the publication of Voice. And to talk about just a small number of those in the March edition, I'm joined by Shirley Winton, one of the founding members of IPAN. Shirley, I'm pretty sure most of your members and 3CR listeners are not fans of what has become the corrupt Olympic Games, but nevertheless, we did focus on the recent Winter Olympic Games as perhaps a way to end the crisis between North and South Korea. Dr. Alison Bronowski, who was one of the keynote speakers at your very successful conference here in Melbourne last year, sent off a press release on this issue. She um, supported the statement that we had drafted, welcoming the North and the people of North and South Korea marching under the one flag, which really represents the strong sentiments by the people of both North and South Korea for unification. We um, drafted the statement and invited Alison Bronowski to to be our spokesperson on that for that statement, and she very willingly accepted that. She has very strong views on the situation on the Korean Peninsula, and like I think, like many others, she's um, very concerned about the presence of the um, the large presence of U.S. Marines, tens of thousands, in South Korea, the TAD system in South Korea. Uh, and also all the, the provocations that are being thrown at North Korea. She's in support, and, and from the responses that we're getting, that is a growing, that, that's a growing concern about America's belligerence and provocation, and America does seem to be much more exposed and isolated for its activities on the peninsula. But I think, the mo- as I said, the most important aspect of the Olympics is the desire for the people of Korea for peace on the peninsula and for unification. And it's a very strong rejection of US military presence and policies towards North Korea. Now, the South Korean government probably would, would not have supported this unless there was such huge pressure and um, activism in, in South Korea for reunification, for peace and against the presence of US military in South Korea. I think that there is much more understanding towards the nuclear weapons that are being developed by North Korea and used as a deterrent to uh, regime change that the U.S. had um, executed in Iraq and in Libya. And North Korea, you would remember, under Bush Jr., I'm not sure, or Senior, had declared um, Korea as being one of the rogue states together with Iraq and with Iran and people, North Koreans I'm sure are aware of what happened to Iraq and attempts that have continued to be made on, for regime change on Iran. And there is a long history of dislike and antagonism to, to America who's had that pro- dominance in South Korea for 70 years. So for decades up to 1945, Korea was occupied by Japanese imperialism. Then in August 1945, immediately after the U.S. dropped atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, they unilaterally partitioned Korea on the 38th parallel line and occupied the country south south of that parallel line. North Korea's response 
was obviously to US occupation was that they they objected to that and I think the objection was in the form of military because the US stationed its US military in South Korea and then they withdrew but the US invaded North Korea to impose a regime change and launched that 1950 and 53 war on the peninsula and there were over 3 million North Koreans who were killed and there would have been many, many more, more millions who have be, been injured. And the daily rate of um, death of US troops was four times that it was in Vietnam. So it was a huge, um, a massive invasion. And those are the figures that we don't hear about? No, no, those figures we don't hear about. But they are coming out now. There's more evidence. And um, recently a book was written by... Sorry, I can't remember his name. Who goes quite deeply into the history of the Korean Peninsula and reasons, and you know sets out reasons why there is such suspicion, strong suspicion from North Korea and the Korean people generally to U.S. presence. Now, you know, they, uh, the U.S. between 50 and 53, the U.S. carpet bombed North Korea, used napalm and other biological weapons. And Australia was involved in it. Australia obliged the U.S. in the in this war against the North, uh, against the Korean people. It, it seems that that in terms of public sentiment, that there is a, now a shift away from um, supporting the U.S. It still has a long way to go, but certainly the people of North and South Korea are demanding the uni- unification and. Uh, removal. There's a stronger voice in South Korea for removal of U.S. troops and bases there. So I think that the Olympics, and I agree with you about the the corruption in the Olympics and and um, cynicism about Olympics. But certainly, the people of Korea have very cleverly used the Winter Olympics being held there to their own advantage in sending a very strong message to the world that they want unification, they want peace, and America exposed themselves even further when Pence refused to stand up when the both North and South Korean athletes marched under, at the opening ceremony, marched under the unified flag of, of North and South Korea. Of course, the situation is, is going to change. It seems to be changing with um, removal of, of Tillerson, who apparently <laughs> had a much more dove attitude, which is amazing. To, Do you to wonder we even got there in the first place? Well, that's right, that's right. And, and for him to be, appear to be mild compared to the, the new the, uh, Secretary. Secretary of the State, who's uh, hawkish like anything, and he is itching for for a war with North Korea and ultimately with with China. So North Korea will continue continue to be a a real pivotal point in the in the Asia Pacific region. Just pick up on a couple of points there. First, that the North Koreans wanted a peace treaty right from the word go at the end of the hostilities, and the second is the role of Japan in Korea. There's no love lost from the Korean people of Japan and I doubt whether they've ever apologised or any reparations for what happened in Korea. Yeah, that's right, Jan, and you're spot on. And it's um, when we had um, our conference, we had a, a speaker from Jeju Island. She did express that the same views of the enormous suspicion and also 
hostility to, to Japan and not trusting Japan because of the treatment of the, of the Korean people under its, its occupation. And, and they occupied Korea, the Korean Peninsula, for decades, going back into the 19th century, I understand. So the role of, of, the, of Japan in, that, in the alliance with the US is, is clearly understood and resented by the people of Korea. And, you know, and there's similar views are now being held towards Australia, where Australia is so, so part of that triumphant of uh, Japan, US and Australia in provocations in, on the Korean Peninsula. I understand there are two Australian warships that birthed in Jeju Island in January, I think, and um, there was a lot of agitation and protest by the people of Jeju Island against the the US and, Ameri- and Australian warships. And if there is a peace deal, as there should be, all those troops, US troops, would have to go from South Korea? Well, that's what I think that's what the, the, a lot of people in South Korea and certainly in North Korea would want, mm-hmm. that as long as the, the troops, the US troops are there and the TAD is there and the bases are there, they're posing a constant threat to, to peace and to North, as far as North Korea is concerned, certainly a threat to, to North Korea. Under the present administration, it's quite unlikely. In fact, um, America is, is ramping up their presence in the Asia-Pacific and, in, in and on the peninsula. And therefore that all indicates the importance of building a very strong and powerful people's peace movement throughout the region. And here in Australia we have a, a boot collection for peace. That's right. There's a, um, uh, it's an initiative of the Independent Peaceful Australia Network and the purpose of the boot collection, I mean, it has double, it has several aspects to it. And the immediate aspect is it's, it's a vehicle through which we raise awareness about Australia being tied into the US alliance and the presence of US Marines in Darwin. And that the purpose of those US Marines in Darwin is basically it's a, a it's a base, it's a base for you, or a launching pad for the US in its preparations in Asia Pacific. People are probably aware that there's 2,500 U.S. troops are now permanently stationed in Darwin, and that was under the agreement with the former Gillard government, who agreed to to host the 2,500 the American 2,500 Marines, without going to Parliament, without um, without taking it to the people of Australia. The presence of those troops there is threatening Australia's security too, that in the event of war, I think it has been said often enough, the troops, Darwin troops and Pine Gap would be one of the main targets in the region. So the purpose of this, um, give them the boot, is to give the US Marines the boot or get them out of Australia, out of Darwin. There's thousands of leaflets will be distributed to homes. There's a trial. Um, it has been started in New South Wales. There's a trial that's taking place in Sydney, in Merrickville, a couple of suburbs in Merrickville, but also in Newcastle, where at the moment I think there's 5,000 or 6,000 leaflets have been distributed to people's homes. And the leaflets give an explanation. They raise it, the purpose is to raise awareness, raise awareness that Australia doesn't have an independent foreign policy. We are at the beck and call of the US in, in all their foreign affairs. 
and it calls on the on the people, the households to to support this campaign by leaving old boots on the doorstep. And the plan is to collect thousands of of boots and then at some date in the future and we're thinking maybe maybe next year at two and twenty nineteen conference, IPEN conference, which we think might be held in Darwin to dump truckloads of boots in front of the, whether it's the, in, in front of the US consulate there or some, or in front of the base, but it'll be some significant and symbolic act, um, saying the Australian people don't want the US Marines here and we don't want to be engaged in US wars. And I imagine within the peace movement and wider there must be a fair bit of concern about the deal that Trump did with Malcolm over trade, what he's promised in return for that. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that he let the cat slip the cat out of the bag by saying that there is some security, they have to finalise security agreement. And we know very well the two minutes after Trump was elected or was anointed as the president, he announced and directed all their allies to pull their weight and, and contribute more of their public fund towards uh, funding US wars and he he didn't beat around the bush on this, he was quite clear and so the the agreement undoubtedly it will include or the trade-off will in, undoubtedly include Australia's support for US activities adventures in the Asia Pacific including um, sending naval warships into the disputed territories, territory of South China Sea, including the uh, boycott of uh, or trade embargo on North Korea. You know, it's, it's, I think it's a foregone conclusion. I think that's how everyone accepts it, that that's what, it's, what, it, that's what it means. The other aspect to that, I think, is the $3.8 billion that the Australian government has announced that it would set up a, spe- a special agency to give out loans to weapons manufacturers. Now they're making out, they're dressing it up as wep- the Australian weapons manufacturers and how that's going to boost the jobs and it's going to boost, you know, more income to Australia and it'll be, you know, it's all painted as a, as a, as a rosy picture of, um, you know, of all, of all the benefits to Australian people, but the reality is that it is targeting and it's aimed at public funding that will go to the big multinational weapons manufacturers that are already uh, operating in Australia, like Lockheed Martin, like Boeing and Raytheon, the three biggest global weapons manufacturers, and they're all Americans, and the BAE, which is the British weapons manufacturer. So in effect, in reality, is that Australia will basically be an agent for these corporations. America's economy is, is, is struggling. There's no doubt about it. And I think that the military-industrial complex is demanding more from the, their global allies. There's publicly in America, there's the people are struggling and for the government to spend more money on the military-industrial complex is going to be a, a quite a big reaction. So they're putting the pressure on the, on the allies like Australia, the reliable lackeys like Australia. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. 
John Bartlett, I'm speaking with Shirley Winton from the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. And maybe a little bit more pressure with one of the top military brass coming as the ambassador mm. from the US. Mm. So, yeah, the very famous um, US ambassador to Australia, Harry Harris, and it's sending a very clear message uh, of US plans to tie Australia firmly into the US military agendas and policies, but also the economic, because he was part of the performance at the announcement of this um, the trade deal. So even though he, you know, he, his oversight is economic and military and political, the fact that he was there, I think, is an indication, and his military background. So it does send a very clear message, and his role is much more than being a passively keeping an eye on Australia to ensure that we don't stray away too far away from the US. He stated very clearly on, on the public announcement of his appointment that he is a soldier. This is not going to be a retirement package. This is not going to be like, you know, having little drinks with the US, with the Australian government and various other politicians. It is an active appointment to promote the and, and to protect American interests in Australia and in Asia Pacific. He's a proclaimed hawk and he's um, aggressive and belligerent towards China and North Korea and he's made no bones about that. He's, he's been very clear. It is a real concern and he will continue to actively oversee and direct US military operations and and ensure that there's Australian unquestioning loyalty to the US. His appointment is, cr- is crucial for the US in Asia Pacific, and I think one of the telling exhibits of this is that on the day of his announcement, the Financial Review noted that this was the most significant and senior appointment to the position of US Ambassador to Australia since Marshall Green's appointment in 1973 and 1975. So it's there in black and white. And I think most people, well, I don't know, if, maybe not most people, but most people who were, who were around in that period in 1970, early 1970s, the late 1960s, early 70s, uh, are quite familiar with Marshall Green. Marshall Green was involved in the, that's a publicly recognised and it's a factual, he was involved in the coup in Indonesia in 1966. Then he was involved in the, then he moved to Chile and lo and behold, there was a coup in Chile. And then lo and behold, we have a semi-coup in Australia at the end of 1975, November the 11, 1975, when with the Whitlam government started making noises about being a little bit more independent of uh, the US and questioning the role of the Pine Gap there. So all those things are pretty much tied up and, uh, you know, building a, an anti-war peace movement uh, and calling for an independent Australian foreign policies is more urgent than ever before, the way particularly with the new appointment of a CIA head, former CIA head, to the position of Secretary of State. And there's a fairly strong connection between Harris and Japan. He's been up there for quite a while. And the people of Nakanawa have been fighting forever to rid yeah. the Americans from their island. So they've been fighting there. My understanding is they've been fighting since the establishment of the base in 1945, shortly after 1945. And it's been without let up. 
that, that they've been organising and mobilising to remove the, the US base, to remove the soldiers. And it's a huge movement. It's, it's, it's enormous. And in 2004, there was an attempt, there is an attempt, still continuing to be an attempt, to move one of the bases to another part of Okinawa, which doesn't, presently doesn't have the bases. And the local people have mobilised, and, and for the last 14 years, they've been campaigning and opposing the the installation. So it's not actually moving the base. It's not moving the base from one area to another. It's actually expanding the Okinawa as a, as a military base for the US. The Okinawans local people have had this picket line, this protest, for 14 years non-stop. And um, I don't know, people might have seen some of the, some of the videos of people who have actually set up their permanent, permanent house on that protest line. And there were tens of thousands that right around the Okinawa and also throughout Japan that have been protesting. The latest development there is that one of the protesters has been arrested and is being threatened with being thrown into jail. And, and there's a, a worldwide petition circulating calling on the Japanese government to drop all the charges against these three protesters who've been there a very, very long time. So, um, oh, that's right, their names are Hiroji Yamashiro, Hiroshi Inaba and Atsuhiro Soeda. What uh, are they charged with? Well, they're charged with, with trespassing, my understanding, which um, a similar kind of charge that we have here in Australia, but also in preventing or stopping US personnel moving onto the base. That's my understanding. I don't know much about it, but I do know that it's it's been a huge um, a huge movement, and internationally it's been a huge movement. And I, and I think that you know when you think about the movements in in Japan, the movements in South Korea, Jeju Island, New Zealand had a long movement for for independence. In America, there's a new organisation called Coalition Against. U.S. foreign military bases, which has affiliates from all around the world, which is very active and recently held a conference, and the movement that's developing slowly in, in, in Australia. And, and there's very strong movements against U.S. foreign bases in Italy and also in Germany, in South America. It's a huge people's movement, uh, and it's growing, and we need to find ways to give that movement, that unity and a strong voice. Well, we have to when you consider that probably selling, buying and selling arms is probably the biggest industry in the world now. That's right, Jan, and and, um, America's economy is dependent on that military-industrial complex on selling and buying arms. So is the um, Saudi Arabia, and Australia is going to be. And what's happening in Australia is where the manufacturing, the diverse manufacturing industry is basically being closed down by globalisation. Our car industry has just totally disappeared and we have another industries, manufacturing industries are disappearing. And instead the government is allocating $20 billion over the next 20 year, over the next 10 years, plus the $3.8 billion in setting up this loans agency for corporations, our economy is now being restructured to be dependent on permanent wars. 
They're not going to provide many jobs in Australia. They're all going to be high tech. But the way that it's the, the manufacturing industry is being restructured and our whole economy is that we're dependent on permanent wars, global wars, which is just outrageous. And I, I don't think people just realise exactly what's happening to Australia's economy completely now. And that brings into focus the fact that unions and workers need to be involved in the peace movement. Yep. So IPEN has uh, set up a, a working group, or it's, uh, it's called Peace and Justice, a Union Business. The purpose of that is to take, is to find ways to connect for unions to become in, engaged, involved in the anti-war movement and also in the campaign for an independent foreign policy. Now, I think most people know that Australian unions have a very long and proud tradition and history of being very active in the anti-war movement and, in fact, in many cases leading the, the anti-war movement. And there was the case in the conscription period in the late 20s where the warfers refused to load a ship bound for Japan with our pig iron. And, and during the Korean War, the unions were very much opposed to it and they were active during the, the situation in Indonesia in the late 60s. An enormous participation in the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War. And in the Vietnam War, there are many like the, the unions, particularly the maritime unions, the, the metal workers, the construction unions. They're all very, very much involved in opposing the Vietnam War and building the, the Vietnam moratorium. Many went on strike um, to attend the moratoriums and other protest marches. And similarly in the Iraq War, the, in 2003, where we had in Melbourne 250,000 and also around Australia marching, opposing to a war in Iraq, unions were very active in the, and in fact in, this, in Melbourne, the, the centre of the Victorian Peace Network, which coordinated a very, very broad network of community and unions organisation, the centre of it, the nerve centre of it was at the Trades Hall. We need to revive that history. We need to revive that, that tradition. One of the roles of Peace and Justice's union business is to develop a package which would form part of a component of unions' training of delegates and new members. So there would be a component that would talk about the history of Australia's unions in the anti-war movement and why peace and justice is union business and what the situation is currently. The unions that are involved in PJA, that's peace and justice, a union business, are the MUA, so we have the branches from Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria who are affiliated to IPAN, the ETU in Queensland and Victoria, CFMEU in, in Victoria, individual workers and retired workers and from Newcastle, the trades hall there is also affiliated. And it's a very, it's a very active group. There's about, at the moment, we was only set up from the conference. That's one of the outcomes of the conference. On our national coordinating committee, we have 20 representatives from different unions. And then we also have state committees, union state committees. One of the things that we're planning to do this year, apart from the um, developing the, the package of why peace and justice is union business for educating basically members and delegates, one of the other things that we're planning to do is to organise, bring out a speaker from South Korea on a national tour to talk about the involvement of the union of the unions 
in the anti-war movement in South Korea. And as you probably know, the South Korean unions are very active, very militant on the question of peace, about removal of the U.S. troops from the South and for the unification. Another activity that we hope will generate more thinking about and more understanding of why of the role of unions in in engaging in in struggle for peace. Finally, surely it'll all come together next Sunday for Palm Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Palm Sunday is is important for all people who support peace and oppose wars because wars create refugees, and you can't you can't talk about refugees about the the condition of the refugees. And what's ha- without talking about the wars around the world that create such terrible, terrible conditions for for people that create so much devastation, homelessness, death, destruction, and that's throughout world's history. Refugees you can always trace the refugees to wars, and it hasn't changed. Be wonderful though if we could get rid of this government with Dutton, his latest oh. foray is to. We will help the South African <laughs> white farmers while yeah. they're deporting Sri Lankans to a very uncertain future. Well, it really shows his class background, his class outlook. But interestingly, Malcolm Fraser, who was a very outspoken critic of the both Liberal and Labor governments' policies on refugees and worked tirelessly to remove those policies, he did say before he died that the irony of keeping the the genuine refugees out of Australia but letting in white South African wealthy burghers, whatever they're called. And also from Zimbabwe. And from Zimbabwe, yeah. I can remember going to Western Australia many years ago and just the accent, that Boer accent just hit me. I know, it's awful, isn't it? It's awful. And it's like, um, what's his name, the, the finance minister? Matthias. Oh, just his accent. And I know he, he claims that he's from Belgium, but I'm not... Oh, it just doesn't ring Well, right. that's where they came from, that area. I know. Holland and Belgium, so we and have to take his word, don't we? But I always associate his politics and his, and his accent. I associate with South Africa, with apartheid, with... Reactionary politics. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one. No. no. <laughs> Thanks, Shirley. Thank you, Jan. And you'll be listening to Shirley Winton from the Independent, Peaceful and Australia Network. Lots of work being done and continue to being done to try and do that, those two things, peace and independence for all of us here in Australia. And this is 3CR and it's coming up to... Five minutes past five o'clock. Dear listeners, the annual Good Friday charity radiothon of the Australian Medical Aid Foundation will kick off from 9am to 6.30pm on Friday the 30th March. 3CR is dedicating its media space to support this noble cause. Therefore, 3CR's regular program will not be on air during this time. The funds raised from this 10-hour radiothon will be utilized to supply medical aid, equipment, training, patient-centered care programs and resources to those affected by 30 years of war in the north and east of Sri Lanka. You too can become a generous partner by calling us on 03-9419-8377 during the radiothon on 30th 
Friday to donate towards this wonderful initiative. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Time of the month for our look at issues concerning genetically modified organisms. And on the line is Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics Network. Bob, FSANZ, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, are deciding if food from its new GM lab technique for plants and animal production will be regulated and labelled. What is your input into this? Well, at the moment, they're looking at the new genetic manipulation techniques and their food products. Uh, they've got a consultation on until April the 12th in which they're considering whether or not they're going to regulate these new GM techniques and the foods that they produce and whether or not they'll be requiring a label. On the basis of what they've done about previous genetic manipulation, um, it's not looking too good. I'd say that they're going to try to exempt most things. Which are? Well, we don't yet know exactly what's going to come out of the box. The new genetic manipulation techniques can be used to manipulate any living organism. So it could be something human, animal, plant or microorganism. And, of course, foods can come from really animals, plants and microbes of any description. So we're not yet sure exactly what this suite of new foods would be. But... Uh, the SANS have recruited a so-called expert committee, uh, including some people who have got conflicts of interest in favour of the technology, to advise them about this. And on the basis of what they've done previously, I'd say that they'll be um, going for the deregulation of some or perhaps even all of these new foods, and there'll certainly be no label, uh, judging by what they've done with the previous GM food products. What's happening in other comparable countries? Well, the USA is very deregulatory, but the debate is well, particularly in Asia and Europe, who are a major destinations for our products. So I think uh, and what we'll be saying to the regulators by April the 12th, when the submissions do, we'll be uh, calling on the regulator, at least initially, to regulate everything and to require comprehensive labelling as well, because that's what shoppers in Australia expect. We know that well over 90% of all shoppers want all genetically manipulated foods and food products, food ingredients, to be labelled. I think if that knowledge is out there, that um, we'll be a lot better off at least than um, if uh, they take the regulations off from the beginning. Remembering that these foods, of course, have no history of safe use, and the evidence of their off-target effects is still primitive indeed. These are techniques we're talking about that have only been invented in the last five years. So 
the whole picture is pretty unclear. But unfortunately, our federal government in other processes is moving in a very deregulatory direction at the moment as well, so that uh, discussions about the release of GM, new GM organisms into the environment, um, as if they'll exempt some of those as well. If they've got these experts or so-called experts looking at this, why would they take any notice of groups such as yours and you're also encouraging people to put in a submission? Why are they going to take notice of you? Well, we still have to raise our voices. Uh, We need to to denounce the process. But do they uh, listen? Well, for SANS hasn't shown much sign of listening uh, up to date, but of course for SANS is only an instrument. For SANS is actually subject to control by the Legislative and Governments Forum on Food Regulation, which consists of food and agriculture ministers from all the governments around Australia. So that's the uh, action may be. We're certainly seeking to influence health ministers in particular to take a precautionary approach and to tell the SANS that they should do their job. And their job is to be free on the public's behalf requiring things to be properly assessed, labelled and regulated. Uh, That's what we're certainly going to say. We'll continue to say it. We've been saying it for the last 30 years and we'll stop now. What about release of uh, herpes virus? That sounds pretty, pretty drastic into the waterways. Well, this is another proposal that's um, up for discussion at the moment. CSIRO, uh, through the Animal Health Laboratory in Geelong, which is a level four secure facility, are working with uh, money provided to them by the US military to look at a number of different ways to control feral animals. And the particular thing about herpes virus uh, is that uh, there's a proposition that the carp, which is a big problem in waterways, uh, could be wiped out by putting a virulent carp herpes virus into the water and um, infecting the carp population with it. Of course, the ecological consequences of having millions of tons of dead carp clogging up our rivers has got to be looked at as well. So this again is an ongoing discussion. There are many environmentalists of course who are very very keen on feral animal control and uh, we're having to have conversations with our colleagues working in that space uh, to make sure that they understand that uh, this is not just a quick fix as well because of course It'll be a bit like myxomatosis or caliche virus with rabbits that uh, you can release these viruses. But as we know, some of the animals, and in this case it's the carp that is the target, some of those will be resistant, some will survive, and very soon you'll likely be back to square one, having created an environmental disaster and perhaps the worst-case scenario, having also killed off the other native fish in the uh, river ecosystems around Australia, particularly the Murray-Darling, which particularly has a big carp uh, problem at the moment. How could this virus spread globally? Well, you just have to assume in in global free trade that um, once you release any organism that, that it can have global consequences. This virus has been brought in from elsewhere in the world. 
course, uh, our researchers are seeking to make it more virulent so that it will uh, kill a carp more effectively. And um, as a result, we need to think about whether or not we might deliver that virus via travellers, transport, uh, in goods, uh, back into other people's environments where the carp is a very valued uh, source of, of uh, animal protein for huge sections of the human population, particularly in So we shouldn't just take a small localised view about this. We need to take the big picture view uh, before we could possibly allow any of these viruses to be released. Discussions ongoing, but it isn't at the moment engaged in any uh, logical or orderly public process. And we also therefore are calling on uh, the Departments of Environment to get this under control, to uh, publicise what's going on in the laboratories and what would likely happen when it hits the environment because without that, the public will be deprived of a proper say as well. Is there also a concern that this Geelong facility has a bit of history? Well, it does have some history of unauthorised releases, and one of the researchers, unfortunately, was trapped a lock over a weekend and died. So, yes, it does have a little chequered history of allowing staff to go home when they've been inadvertently infected, for instance, with Newcastle disease. Uh, which would um, kill the chicken population in Australia if it got out in a serious way. There are questions, and of course some of the uh, scientists working there are among those who are advising our federal regulators to deregulate these new GM methodologies as well. So uh, they've got a very mixed agenda of wanting to get their research, wanting to get their new organisms out into the environment and into the marketplace. We think that they should declare their interests and uh, refrain from giving robust information and advice to uh, to our regulators and our governments because uh, that tends to skew the thing in favour of the research establishment and the industry against the public interest. And not to forget a few years ago with the so-called accidental release of the Khaleesi virus. Well, yes, that, that's right, uh, so-called accidental. The Kalichi virus was uh, field-trialled on Wardang Island off South Australia. It was supposed to be secure, but within a very few days, of course, it arrived on the mainland. There were supposed to be orderly plans for rolling out the Kalichi virus to maximise its impact on the rabbit population, but that never happened, and, of course the resistance to the virus arose very quickly because young rabbits, uh, if they're exposed early, come immune to the virus for their lifetime. It complicated the the effectiveness and the release of that virus um, quite a bit. And in the long run, of course, we're back to square one with rabbits now resistant and uh, increasing in huge numbers everywhere. It's um, not a pretty picture. We need to rethink the strategy of um, feral animal biocontrol altogether because it um, it is a short-term strategy. It has uh, major environmental impacts, doesn't really have any permanence and doesn't work in the long term. Is that the major work that's done at that facility, type of work? Well, it's very highly contained. As 
and it's level four containment, so people are in space suits when they go in there and so on. It's also pretty hush-hush. What exactly is being done there is hard to say, but we do know that um, there is interest in preparation. As I mentioned, uh, the U.S. military are interested in the new genetic manipulation, so-called gene drives, and we are calling those the extinction technology. These are uh, genetic constructs that will drive a deleterious gene through a whole population of organisms. And we know that the uh, U.S. military has put, um, well, it's put several million dollars, but initially around a quarter of a million dollars in Australia to CSIRO, um, the University of Adelaide, and a couple of others that are going to work jointly on uh, controlling uh, rats and mice. And there is a proposal to take that work out of the laboratory and onto offshore islands. Well, again, it'll be a bit like the Wardang Island experience. It won't stay on the island, and what the impacts of eliminating all rodents and perhaps even the native relatives of rats and mice throughout Australia would be the consideration that would be, need, be needed prior to any proposal for release. Again, though, this work is pretty hush-hush, and it's only as a result of um, some pretty uh, good FBI freedom of information work by the Third World Network in Asia that um, the movement here has come by some documents that um, disclose what's going on. And um, at the moment, the government really hasn't owned up, and the researchers haven't really admitted the full extent of what they're doing even at this stage. So there's never been any whistleblowers from that facility? <laughs> Afraid not. When you see what happens to whistleblowers, mm. unfortunately, I don't know if you caught the item over the weekend about a policeman who um, outed some cops for bashing up uh, prisoners on the Gold Coast and he was the one who was taken to court, not them. So whistleblowers are in a very uncomfortable position it's always good to find someone who's willing to uh, tell the truth about what's going on behind the scenes. But for uh, whistleblowers, it's always a very high-risk enterprise and um, the consequences for them can be very nasty and messy indeed. Australian agriculture must make the customer king. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> oh, yes, well, of course... Um, Pleasing your customers is uh, what we, of course, ought to be doing if we can. And this came out at the Bureau of Resource Economics uh, recent conference. The executive director there was telling their annual summit that uh, this, in the age of personalised nutrition, that pleasing the customer would become even more important. Of course, looking to niche marketing again, high-income consumers of food products in Asia and in other countries too, I guess. So imagining that um, these people would simply uh, accept any old thing, the executive director was warning, you can't take their um, interest in our clean green food products for, for uh, granted at all, and we have to be very smart about what we produce. This goes, of course, to the heart of questions uh, about things like pesticide residues, genetic manipulation of food, 
food additives and methods of production. And we haven't got that right yet because, of course, uh, with the exception of South Australia and Tasmania, there are GM crops being grown. That is going into the export food supply. And we see that uh, shoppers around the world are saying no to GM and to pesticide residues. So if Australian agriculture wants to prosper, and of course we are, as an industry, they are very, very dependent on uh, exporting to overseas shoppers, then they've got to listen up and just get their act together. An example is the recent report from uh, CSIRO um, as a result of being GM-free, those uh, farmers who are producing uh, GM-free canola have benefited by $100 million a year over the last 10 years, $1 billion in the pocket. So the industry's claims that GM canola is the go are clearly, clearly on the wrong track. And that's the kind of discussion and debate that it is uh, good at least that the Bureau of Resource Economics uh, is having within its own forums. Whether anybody's listening, that's another question. I'm wondering whether there might be any concerns with the new government in South Australia, the Liberal government, in propos of the GM-free status of South Australia. Well, the Shadow Minister, and I don't know whether he will become the Agriculture Minister, David Ridgway, was pretty clear that they a favour uh, lifting the ban on GM in South Australia. However, just before the Greens and the ALP, with the Greens proposing a bill and the ALP supporting it, extended the ban on genetically manipulated crops in South Australia until 2025. So that's good. Of course, the Liberals are now in government. They want a review and they want to lift the ban, but at least it will have to go back to the Parliament and getting it through the upper house will not be so easy. They'll have the numbers in the house, but in the upper house, they won't have the numbers. And the other interesting thing about the Liberals in South Australia is that, to summarise, one of their members told us, well, in opposition, we're a rural party. We speak to farmers and others out on the hinterland, but in government, we tend to be an urban party. So... Hopefully during the forthcoming debate and discussion about free status of South Australia, the shoppers of Adelaide and the other cities around South Australia will be heard and will be taken notice of by the MPs. Hopefully there will be an internal debate within the Liberal government and uh, we will certainly be seeking to prevail because on the evidence there are very significant benefits to South Australia from remaining GM-free. And we've got that benefit now of pension until 2025. So uh, it will be reviewed, but um, hopefully it won't go very easily through the Parliament. Looking at Western Australia, which now has a, a Labor government, what difference has that made? Well, there's a review going on there now, uh, which is inquiring into the, for a compensation scheme for landholders and supply chains that may become uh, contaminated with genetically manipulated material, particularly canola. Uh, that's a robust discussion going on. There's a parliamentary committee inquiring into it, and we're hopeful 
that a fund may be established to automatically compensate landholders when they experience PM contamination. It would be funded by a small levy on the sale of every kilogram of genetically manipulated seed and we're proposing that at least initially a dollar per gram would be uh, the sort of amount that uh, would be appropriate, say a 10% levy. We'd put that before the committee. Of course, the other side are arguing strenuously that this is irrelevant and unneeded because uh, they claim that the segregation of GM and GM-free canola and cotton in Western Australia is successful, that uh, contamination, cross-contamination is minimised and that the vast majority of farmers who remain GM-free are not at risk from their GM neighbours. That doesn't stand up to even rudimentary scrutiny. So we're hopeful that uh, Alana McTiernan, who's the very open and um, courageous, I think, and sympathetic agriculture minister, uh, will be able to carry some kind of um, compensation system forward through the parliament. The Greens are very much in support of it and were the ones who have been moving forward on it. And also the Greens are looking for a reinstatement of the GM free crop, GM Crops Free Areas Act, which was in place until the Liberals, just before the Liberals lost government last year. There's a lot going on there. West Australia is in flux. And uh, we're very hopeful at the moment that we'll get a good hearing from that committee, parliamentary committee, and that the Minister uh, will accept their recommendations. We're hoping for good recommendations that some kind of uh, compensation fund can be established. It's only fair and reasonable that the industry should pay for the damage that it does by a small levy on the sale of its GM seed. That's our argument. We think it's a winner. Looking overseas for a moment, Bob, what's happening with the amalgamation of Monsanto with other huge companies? Well, it's Bayer that's taking over Monsanto, and uh, it's interesting. It's been going on now for um, since 2016. It hasn't been trouble-free for the company. Hasn't, they haven't had the free ride that we thought they would. Uh, in Europe especially... Of course, Bayer has had to divest itself of some of its um, chemical and genetic manipulation assets to companies in order to not create a monopoly. And similarly, in the USA, they're now discussing the monopolization of chemicals and genetic manipulation if Bayer and Monsanto get together. Because we've seen over the last couple of years that ChemChina took over Syngenta and Dow and DuPont got together. So if the Bayer-Monsanto merger goes ahead, it would that initially at least something like 70% of the world's seed, including all of the genetically manipulated seed, would fall under the ownership and control of just those three companies and uh, something of the order of 60% of the chemicals. This goes to the heart of a very great problem for Australia really, something like 98% of all the seed, vegetable seed, fruit seed in particular, uh, that's sold in Australia is brought in from overseas. 
because of the monopolisation of the seed production industry. Uh, there's virtually no seed now produced in Australia, creating a very difficult situation, particularly for those people like Diggers, Green Patch, Eden and others who are um, making and marketing open and traditional varieties of seed that um, there now will be required if uh, the agriculture part department has its way chemical treatments of uh, all seed from overseas which would also give the organic industry which doesn't use such chemicals a big headache as well so at the moment there's discussion about uh, the way from that seed should be uppermost in our mind because ultimately uh, all life on earth and certainly uh, the agriculture that supports human beings uh, is dependent on seed and uh, the fact that that seed is now under such narrow and corporate control around the world is really should be a, a concern, a big public interest concern because those people are there primarily with their own commercial and profit interests in mind. Uh, the biodiversity of agricultural varieties of seed is being reduced. It's gone down in the 20th century by some 90% uh, for many varieties and types of food, of food crops. It's not a direction. It makes our supply much more fragile for the future and that ownership and control should be broken up and delivered back to the people. Just finally, Bob, the various doomsday vaults around the world now, what are your thoughts on those and who's controlling them? Well, in Australia, the government is collecting seed and um, putting it aside at places like Horsham, for instance, so that's very good, but um, the main uh, doomsday vault, the um, Balbard repository in the permafrost up in Scandinavia, with global climate change, I think there are real issues about whether that's a long-term option. It was a good idea. It was um, mooted some 15 years ago, and of course it's been built. Countries and others around the world have been depositing seeds there as a backup uh, should we lose seeds out in the environment and in agricultural systems but um, it's like all technologies flawed the global climate is changing the permafrost is melting and whether it's a long-term solution say for the next one or two centuries is really just hard to say at this stage but I wouldn't be advising the world to put all its eggs in one basket because that's how we Court. The maintenance of the sustainability of our uh, global food supplies, of course, uh, with increasing populations, is critical to feeding everybody. Our entitlement and our right to be fed and um, our government should be exercising more caution and more imagination about how we go about ensuring that future generations have uh, the same right to a great cornucopia of different foods that we enjoy now. Thank you. And thank you to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And it's 5.33 coming up in a moment, the political economy of massacres in the US. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 
3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Hi, my name is Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name is Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Every year in the US, more than 30,000 citizens are killed by gunfire. There are no statistics of how many are injured. Why? There are many reasons put forward. But I rang Professor Emeritus James Petrus in New York this morning. He's written a paper titled US, the Political Economy of Massacres. And I asked him first why he believes this situation of massacres continues and what he'd see as solutions. I think, uh, first of all, we have to look at the big picture. The U.S. has been involved in uh, seven wars in the last, continuous wars over the last period of time. The uh, military and armed solution is the uh, substitution for diplomacy and negotiations and uh, non-intervention. So I think the politics of war and the politics of uh, armed attacks has uh, penetrated the whole uh, society, and uh, it looks like pretty much that uh, armed uh, intervention, whether at the, at the international, national, or local level, is, uh, is the uh, culture and the uh, environment in which uh, people think and, and, and behave. Second is the mass media here saturated 24-7 with uh, violent stories of uh, criminals and police killing each other, and uh, that's another factor. Uh, the third thing is that uh, we have a uh, National Rifle Association which uh, facilitates a political environment in which uh, everybody can buy arms. There's over 3 million affiliates of the National Rifle Association. Anybody can buy caramels or lollipops uh, as well as guns at the, uh, at the local gun store or, or sports store. Uh, so that's another factor that's important. And furthermore, I think at the uh, local level, uh, you have uh, police uh, constantly interfering and uh, shooting innocent people, as we've seen in uh, Black Lives Matter and, and other movements that recognize that uh, the guns uh, decide uh, political uh, problems. And finally, I, I should say that mentally disturbed people have very few places to go or to be treated, and, and that's another factor here. They close down the... Uh, uh, mental uh, clinics in the uh, Reagan period, thinking that people that have mental problems can be taken care of in their communities or their households, and that's clearly not the case. We need the professional mental health people 
much more available to deal with these uh, people uh, that have uh, disturbances, uh, problems, uh, conflicts. Uh, these are the factors, I think, that have uh, been at least some of the factors that I uh, uh, analyze as uh, leading up to uh, these uh, frequent massacres in the schools and uh, in public places. Can I go back on a couple of those, how war criminals are honoured, and also how many ex-combatants are included in people who actually go out and shoot? Well, in some cases it's been true. The veterans that have been shooting up civilians in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan uh, come back uh, mentally disturbed. Frequently there are people that have uh, been involved in uh, killing of innocent people or resolving their uh, inner and outer conflicts through uh, violence. So I think the uh, mentally disturbed war veterans and people engaged in uh, combat has uh, been another factor that influences uh, the uh, growth of massacres as a uh, everyday occurrence. When you talk about the role of the mass media, that includes films, TV programs, computer games, do you see them becoming, has become more violent than what they were, say, 20, 30 years ago? I don't know if they're more or less, but they're very frequent. And, and I think uh, just turn on the television and switch the dial and... Uh, you see uh, another shooting, another mis uh, murder, uh, police investigating, and, uh, and these uh, video games are constantly uh, involved with the large scale blowing up people in, in homes and streets and uh, in everyday occurrences. And I, I think that has uh, permeated millions of young people. Do you understand why it's got to this stage where all these computer games are so violent? Can you explain that? Well, I think the excitement of uh, blowing up uh, people and the excitement of action, the excitement of uh, uh, power in the sense of people feeling powerless and, and uh, vicariously participating in this violence can be in a mentally uh, disturbed person a, a form of acting out their impotence. Looking at the economy, how important to the economy of the United States is the, is the manufacturing and selling of weapons? Well, the manufacturing uh, industry is a big business. It's, uh, if we take the whole defense budget of uh, over $700 billion, it's clearly uh, a very, very important ingredient in the economy and uh, in affecting the uh, the political thinking of legislators and others, as well as the rifle clubs, have a, a stranglehold on the political structure and, and the inability to uh, legislate anything that restricts in any way the use of uh, automatic weapons and weapons of uh, a multiple uh, shot weapons. So I, I think it's a mixture of the, the war industries, the military uh, industries, the uh, rifle clubs and uh, the uh, local retail sellers and also the uh, gun fairs that they have in all these uh, communities. And, and you just go walk in and uh, put your money on the table and you can buy an automatic weapon. Does race come into killings on a large scale? I know you say that, that black lives matter, but is it mainly 
young or older white males? Well, it, it varies. Uh, we've seen in the school massacres mostly young people who are mentally disturbed, but we've also seen uh, adults involved in shootings as practically a daily occurrence, and uh, especially family members uh, and the neighbors, uh, etc. There's a breakdown of... Uh, of community and a breakdown of solidarity, especially people and neighbors that know there's a disturbed person with propensities to violence and they don't report them to the police especially. And if they do, the police don't do anything. They say, well, they haven't committed a crime yet, so we can't intervene. And these kinds of behaviors, I think, has, uh, uh, has multiplied. I know in, in this very small city that I live in, there was a mentally disturbed Vietnam immigrant who went to the immigration office and shot up and killed nine people. And his family had previously reported him to the police, and he, he was known, and nothing was done. And uh, we just walked into a sports store, bought up the uh, weapons, and went down to the immigration office and, and shot up the whole place. In the meantime, the police stay outside the building. They had a uh, practice of uh, not uh, assaulting the uh, site and saving people's lives. They were guarding the periphery, as they call it, and uh, prohibited even uh, uh, aid givers, medical personnel from going in, and as a result, wounded people died. Uh, they're beginning finally, after uh, many years, to discover that that's not the way to go, but in the recent uh, shooting in Florida, the, the uh, intervening police were sitting outside watching the building. Is it mainly white on black and Hispanic? No, it's, uh, it's mostly been whites in these school massacres. And uh, I don't know what the percentages are, but the victims are all, of all colors, uh, Asians and Latinos and African Americans and, and uh, white people. So I think the, the indiscriminate killings, though today we have news that there's a, a serial bomber that's uh, attacking in Austin, Texas, the capital of the state of Texas, and he's uh, already uh, put out four uh, these uh, package bombs and uh, it seems that the principal targets are African-Americans. So this is a, a simply a pointer that uh, that's present, too, especially with Trump's election. It seems as if the uh, anti-black terrorists are coming out of the woodwork. Talk about the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. They always fall back. The gun owners always fall back on that. Can that be altered? Yes, it can be altered. Uh, the laws on on uh, safety, public safety, is is primary, uh, and one should recognize that the Second Amendment was signed to uh, protect militias at the time of the uh, Declaration of Independence and the uh, Constitution. It was not meant for individuals going out and owning guns and and shooting up people. It was done with a specific idea of allowing farmers and others who were protesting against the uh, banking and commercial elites who were exploiting the, uh, the farmers to have some 
voices and capacity to resist uh, government infringements on their livelihoods. So that, that was a different context, and it's been transferred into a context now that's totally different. Has there in the past been attempts to change the Constitution on this issue? Not that I know of. What would it take? I think it would take a revolution in this country to get enough support. We can't even get laws which uh, fix the age for buying rifles or for some background checks on people that are purchasing guns. So we have to stop at, at, at we have to start at a very simple level of uh, simply uh, outlawing uh, automatic rifles and uh, putting some identification. Uh, of people before they uh, purchase these uh, multiple shot weapons. It just brings into question why they were allowed to have semi-automatic weapons in the first place. There's no reason that's given. It's part of the the gun culture here that you can use any weapons at any time for any purpose. Now you've mentioned the National Rifle Association. They've got three million members. That's out of a population of something like 200 million, though, isn't it? It's not a huge number. Yes, 300 million, yes. 300 million. It, it doesn't seem like a lot, but some of the uh, people own multiple guns. Uh, they have families uh, and neighbours and others that have access to the same guns. It isn't as if the National Rifle Association doesn't uh, set up uh, some training programs and have shooting places where people can shoot in a uh, enclosed area. So they have some regulations and structures, but then they go beyond that and uh, encourage people outside of the gun clubs. The gun clubs actually teach people how to use guns and uh, restrict their behavior. But beyond that, and, and, and some hunting clubs of shotguns, but uh, they then extend that to all kinds of guns. So one can't just blame the National Rifle Association. It has a very big effect, a negative effect in many ways, but it also imposes some restrictions or at least a framework in which uh, gun shooters could function without uh, threatening society. I'd imagine also the association and some of those gun clubs are pretty good lobbyists for politicians to make sure well, that things... Did. They're one of the most influential with the American Zionist organizations. The National Rifle Association has a stranglehold on the Congress and the president. No president has ever taken on the uh, National Rifle Association and demanded uh, a more restrictive policy. Talk a bit more about what should be done and what can be done. To stop this? Well, that's two different things. In the long run, I think we have to uh, change the composition of the media, uh, have uh, media programs which are not violent and deal with social, cultural, and other communitarian issues. So I think a big change in the content of the media. Second, of course, if the country became less warlike and militaristic, in the state policies and encouraging overseas wars and, and fomenting a glorification of soldiers and mass killings of people. So I think that the change in the uh, warlike nature, the imperialist nature of American foreign policy, the change in the content of the media 
uh, big, large-scale changes that will require a lot, a lot of effort and a lot of time. But in the meantime, I think they can uh, outlaw multiple-shot weapons, automatic rifles and uh, machine guns and everything else that kills people very quickly in large numbers. Uh, they can also impose changes in uh, who can buy a gun and their uh, tests and uh, investigation of background people. A third, we can uh, re return to a national uh, mental health programs to deal with people who are disturbed who could become uh, mass killers. So I, I think a lot of these things like uh, mental health clinics, const uh, constraint on the types of weapons, background checks, these are all feasible and short-term reforms which uh, would improve the situation at least. How important do you believe it is that these, the school students are activating? Oh, the protest is, uh, is amazing. It's the one great positive change that's taken place in the last few months or weeks. Millions of, of school children and their parents are marching this weekend and, and into Washington and, and big cities across the United States. This past weekend, hundreds of thousands of students came out protesting about the violence and the threats to children in schools and asking for legislation to ban these weapons along the lines that we've been discussing. So far, the Congress has uh, praised the students and prayed for the victims, but not taken up any uh, serious legislation. So there's a gap here between the uh, mass of uh, citizens, young people, from uh, grammar school to uh, secondary school and, and even university students have turned into a social and political force and will show it in, uh, in the, coming, uh, the coming weekend. James, can you talk for a few more minutes about the situation in Syria and also the contrast in the media coverage of what's happening in Yemen? Well, in Syria, I think it's a very complex picture, but essentially the U.S. intervened and is backing the terrorists, even though they claim they're fighting the terrorists. They've been losing ground, the Syrian uh, national government, with the aid of Russia and uh, the Iran, and its uh, population has, uh, has defeated many of the uh, terrorists and the U.S. and Western-backed groups that were previously occupying substantial parts of Syria. But uh, let's remember 11 million people have been forced into uh, exile and emigration. Over 400,000 people have been killed, many others are wounded. This, uh, this Syrian intervention by the U.S. and its Western allies has been a disaster for the Syrian people and has uh, had a, a very uh, negative effect in terms of uh, creating a peaceful Middle East with Israel providing support and uh, the uh, Saudi Arabians joining with Washington with the most retrograde uh, financial uh, spending on uh, arms for terrorists under the guise of liberation and fighting against the uh, Bashar Assad government, which has offered to uh, participate in negotiations and elections, and this has been anathema to the uh, Western countries. And so it's part of the uh, war policies that have been going on from uh, 
Bush to Obama to Trump, and now the uh, slaughter that's taking place in Yemen, backed by the British and U.S. warmakers who've uh, provided the arms, airplanes, bombs that have killed uh, thousands of Yemeni people who want to free themselves from uh, the domination by the Saudis and their puppet regimes in Yemen. Can you talk for a moment about the impact of Turkey in Syria? Turkey is now a, a player because they want to eliminate the possibility of the uh, Kurds having uh, autonomous territories on the borders between uh, Syria and Turkey. And apparently they've succeeded in one particular region uh, just today. Uh, however, the uh, U.S. has selected and worked with the uh, Kurds for their own purposes of uh, undermining the Syrian government. So now it's uh, the dilemma is if Turkey moves further and, and encroaches on the territories where U.S. troops are stationed, in alliance with the Kurds, we'll have a very interesting conflict between two NATO uh, powers. The situation regarding Russia, it seems that every Western power now is down on Putin. Where do you believe that will lead? Well, it's very clear that uh, Russia has played a very positive role in limiting the uh, incursions of the U.S. and in some parts of the world, in Ukraine, and the uh, Russians have played an important role in restraining the U.S.-backed terrorists in Syria. But I think the real issue is that with Putin, Russia has become an independent country again. It's growing. It uh, has a recreated a social uh, and economic and political culture which is flourishing under Putin. And I think the West would like to go back to the Yeltsin years when the 70% of the Russian people were living in poverty. Russia had been converted into a vassal state. There was a multi-trillion dollar pillage of Russian resources by gangster capitalists. And so I think the West would like to bring Russia back, and they hate Putin for accomplishing the opposite of liberating Russia from the uh, claws of these Western countries which had taken advantage of the fall of the Soviet Union and had installed uh, very corrupt and decadent elites. And you'll be listening to Professor Emeritus James Petras from Bingham University in New York, and I spoke to him early this morning. That's about it for me for today. Coming up in a couple of minutes' time is Dunbar Law. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. But let's hear from the late Ruby Hunter. <laughs> 